Today we begin a series that I am both hesitant and excited to begin. It is entitled, God. And the reason for my, my uh, hesitancy, it is just audacious for anyone to think that they could preach on this being we call God. How can an infinite or a finite being like myself describe an infinite being like him? I mean, how do you describe the indescribable? Isaiah 40 says, to whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Now, those are rhetorical questions, and the answer is no one. No one is equal. No one can be compared to him. So how do you preach on someone you can't compare to anything or who has no equal? There just is no reference point in our experience to understand this being. Isaiah 46 says, I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. This is like an ant trying to understand Einstein. Just crazy. However, God, in his grace and mercy, has revealed some things about himself that we can understand. There are some things we can know about this God, and we should want to know this God. Jeremiah 9 says, this is what the Lord says, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. And here's the warning, don't boast in all these other things. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Do you want to brag about something? Brag about having an understanding to know God. Don't be arrogant about your money or your body or your success or your smarts or your family. God is the most important thing worth knowing. Boast in that. Jesus prayed in John 17, Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. Heaven is being with God. And Jesus' prayer for us is that we would know God. So that's why Jesus came, so that we could know God. And there's a lot of opinions about God these days, a lot of varying views of Him. And all I'm asking in this series is let's let God tell us who God is. Not the culture, not your neighbor or your friend, not those cute little Facebook sayings. Let's let God speak and let's be open to expanding our view of Him and enlarging our view of Him because it is just human nature to reduce God. The more we know Him, the larger and bigger our lives and our faith will be. If you do not come away from this series with a greater desire to worship and serve Him and more boldness and joy in life and a change in your perspective, if you don't come away with a greater determination to pray to this God and to serve Him and live for Him with all your being, then, then I have failed. So let me give you some reasons for this series. One is a reminder that it is God we serve and worship. God is the reason we're here this morning. He is the reason we read the Bible. He is the reason we sing the foundation for our hope. God is the reason we love our neighbor and evangelize and give. God is the reason we sacrifice, and we just need to be reminded of that. And and what we do in our daily lives should all be about God all the time. I remember walking in on a worship practice one evening. This is down at Moequa, and the high schoolers were leading that next Sunday, and we were doing some hymns that morning, and the young people weren't too keen on hymns, and the worship minister stopped the practice to lecture these young people, said, now kids, this worship is not about you. And it's not about what you want or what you like. It's not about showing off your musical talent. It is about honoring God. Most of the controversies in a church are not about God. Most of the controversies are about me. Me, 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 me. What I like, my preferences, you know, getting my way. I like hymns. I like choruses. I like drums. I like the organ. I like short sermons. I like long sermons. 
I don't think I've ever heard anyone say they like long sermons, but I thought I'd throw that in there just in case there was any of you out there. Uh, I don't like standing while we sing. I don't like sitting while we sing. It's all about what I like. No, 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 no. The issue of the church, the first issue of our lives is God. What does God want? What does God deserve? How can I honor this God in my life? And when we become God-centered, everything else changes. You just get a whole different perspective, a better perspective, a whole new world. Self-centeredness is always a disaster. God-serving is the way to life. And when we become God-centered, everything changes. He is the king. We are the servant. He's the center of our existence. And when we get that right... We get everything right. Second reason for this series. Remember, it's a reminder of the kind of God we serve. Most people believe in God. A lot of people talk about God. But what kind of God do people really believe in? There is always, and I'm going to say always, the temptation to make God into someone he is not. And we all do it to a certain extent. I do it, you do it. All of us have some faulty theology. And there's always the human temptation, it's human nature, to reduce God in some way, to change Him, or maybe even to miss Him completely. Martin Luther said to his friend Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too human. And that is so profound. I want to make sure that was on the screen. Your thoughts of God are too human. And that is something we all have to battle. We've made him into this manageable deity, a deity that we're comfortable with. In the Bible, it's called idolatry, which is the number one sin in the Bible, to reduce God into an image of our making. It's a God we can control, a God who does what we want him to do. The biblical God is, if I may use a way overused word today, and it makes me gag every time I hear this word anymore. It's so overused. I don't even know why I'm using it. It may gag you when I use it. But the biblical God is, are you ready? What word is it? Awesome, yeah, yeah. I know today everything's awesome. That milkshake was awesome. That movie is awesome. That new hairstyle is awesome. That Garrett, he's just awesome, you know. Well, here's the definition of awesome. Extremely impressive or daunting, inspiring great admiration, apprehension, or fear. And then he gives an example, the awesome power of the atomic bomb. God is the ultimate and really the only awesome. And he is daunting, and he inspires admiration. But God is also scary and dangerous, more so than an atomic bomb. And God cannot be controlled, and that scares the spit out of us. If you have never feared God, you have reduced him greatly. And so we try to reduce him, you know, so I can meet him on my own terms. If I reduce God, I can make him safe and predictable and controllable, and I can live the way life I want to live because God agrees with me. Isn't that great? God agrees with me. Romans 1 says, Although they claimed to be wise, they became idiots. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. They reduced God to images made to look like mortal human beings, a God who looks like us or like an animal. Now, we don't make physical images today but we still exchange the glory of the immortal God for something less. And so we have this reduced God who is, you know, for some people, God is all nice. God is so gentle. God went to her to flee. He loves puppies. And when he came as Jesus, he was kind of a hippie, you know, flower child, a little spacey, but so sweet and so nice. That's one image of God. Or there's the God who agrees with me politically. God is surely a Democrat. No, God's a Republican. 
No, God's really more like Donald Trump, whatever that is. Or here's another one. God agrees with me morally. See, God says lying is wrong. But sexual sin, that's old-fashioned. God's now changed his mind on that one. Your God is too human. And one common denominator of all these images of God, they make God impotent. These images are not going to inspire anyone or anything. They don't challenge us. They don't change us. They don't move us. They don't scare us. It doesn't inspire us or lift us up. Those images of God actually are boring because we've reduced Him to our level. Now, I am one of the most boring people I know. I really am. Don't say amen right now, okay? But I am boring. I'm not very exciting. I don't skydive. I don't take big chances. I don't gamble. I don't go to exotic places. I'm just pretty mundane. And to reduce God to my image is so insulting. When I look at Isaiah and Ezekiel and Moses and Peter and John, when they encountered God, I see all kinds of emotions and reactions. But one reaction they did not have was, not, was boredom. They came away not the same because they encountered the true God. Now, here's the Grand Canyon. Some of you have probably been there. I have not. I tell you, I'm boring. I just... But when you've been out in nature and you see something like that, I had a lady go out in first service. She said, the first time I went to the Grand Canyon, I came to the edge and the sun was setting and she looked down and she said, oh my God. She said, I said it five times and it wasn't swearing. It was worship. When you see something like that really awesome, you get reminded of your smallness and you get a little bit of a sense of this God we worship and his awesomeness. Research has shown that when humans experience awe, I mean, I mean real jaw-dropping awe, we become less individualistic, less self-focused, less materialistic, and more connected to those around us. When we are marveling at something greater than ourselves, we become more able to reach out to others. Awe changes us. Research shows when humans experience awe, we change for the better. If you know someone who's petty and selfish and always negative... They need a good dose of awe of this God, the true God. And if they believe in God and are still petty and selfish, it's because they believe in a reduced rendition of God. Research shows when we love the true God and stand in awe of Him, we are more likely to love others, more likely to forgive others, more likely to overlook wrongs. It's really the first two commandments. Love God and then you will love people. Awe of God causes us to love others. And it has a third benefit too. It actually establishes our self-worth. This amazing, awesome creator actually loves me. Back to the Grand Canyon. You're standing in awe. But off to the side is an eight-year-old kid on an iPad playing feverishly. What What do kids play today? Probably don't want to know that. But anyway, kid is on the iPad. He doesn't notice or even care about this amazing glory of God's creation. And I'm afraid that's many of us. We're playing our games and miss the majesty of God. That's what this series is about. Who is this God? One writer said, visit any church on Sunday morning. Almost any will do. And I don't care if it's charismatic or liturgical. You will likely find a congregation comfortably relating to a deity who fits nicely within precise doctrinal positions and who conforms to individual spiritual experiences. You will not find much awe or sense of mystery. The only sweaty palms will be those of the preacher, unsure whether the sermon will go over. The only shaking knees will be those of the soloist about to sing the offertory, not because of fear of God, but fear of making a mistake. 
I had a fellow minister once comment to me that after doing a study of God, he said, I feel cheated. The God I learned growing up is not the God I read in the Bible. So, I'm going to suggest it may be the worst sin of the church in our time is the trivialization of God. We've tamed the Creator. We've reduced the lion, the king, to a kitty. And it's exactly the same thing Israel did in the Old Testament. Idolatry. And we worship a God we can control instead of a God who controls us. We all do it. You do it. I do it. That's why we need God's grace. Third reason for this series is personal transformation. Just knowing more about God, you know, up in your head, is not the goal. Knowing about His providential care and omnipotence, that's important to know up here in our heads, but it should change our lives and our hearts and our attitudes. Recognizing that God is in control of all things and that we can have complete trust in Him should reduce anxiety. It should give us a new outlook. It should impact us. I personally need this study to enhance my relationship to God. I have reduced Him, and I need a new vision, and I need to see what Ezekiel and Moses and Isaiah and John saw. My inconsistent, weak prayer life and my worries and my anxieties are partially due to, just, to my bad understanding of God. I've reduced Him. My God is too human. Now, one example of God's reduction in the Bible was Israel in the wilderness when they made a golden calf. Aaron formed the calf out of gold and jewels and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. I mean, 30 seconds after they received the Ten Commandments, Moses received the Ten Commandments. This cow is your God. Now, to us, that's crazy. God, a cow? But it just shows it is human nature to reduce God. Now, is it worse to reduce God to a cow or to a Republican? Which is worse? Or a Democrat? That is worse. Just kidding, of course. So all I'm going to do is try to convey some biblical concepts of this God. He is omniscient, which means all-knowing. What are the ramifications of that? If you think on that alone, it'll blow your mind. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. What's that entail? He is just. He is holy. He is awesome. And here's what happens when God is allowed to be God. You'll have a stronger life. See, when we reduce God, we reduce ourselves. When God becomes larger, it enlarges your life. You you have more confidence, you have more hope, you'll have less worry. You can trust that you can turn your worries over to Him. He can handle it. You know you can trust Him. He's a lot bigger than your worries. Uh, The more you'll want to worship. I mean, why would I want to worship a small, boring God? Who wants to worship a cow? Let's go to the ball game instead. A big God is bigger than that ball game. And he elicits our prayer. We can't help. We can't wait to worship him. The bigger your God, you'll have more joy. If God's only role is to meet our needs, no wonder we are miserable. No wonder there's so many Christians that are unhappy. They have a crummy God. A big God inspires hope and confidence and joy. The bigger your God, you'll have moral strength because God is your God, not the culture. The bigger your God, your problems will look smaller because He is so big, it dwarfs anything we encounter. Yeah, there's still problems, but God is a lot bigger, a lot. And if we are to bring spiritual power into our lives, we must begin to change our thinking of God. So, who is this God we worship? That is the question for the next several weeks. And I'll tell you right now, it'll frustrate you. 
Because no matter how much we try, we'll never fully grasp this God. We can never fully describe Him. But He should lift you and hopefully expand your thinking and your praise for Him. And today, all I've wanted to convey is that God is incomprehensible. He is just beyond us. Beyond our minds, beyond our experiences, beyond our everything. Ezekiel had some visions of God. And in the very first chapter of his book, here is what he records. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, I was among the exiles by the river Kabar. The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Now, that gets my attention. And it makes me wonder, okay, what's going to be next? Ezekiel sees visions of God. What's he going to see? What will this God look like? Will it look like this? You know, a king on a throne, that is one description of God in the Bible. Uh, God here looks to be about 60 years old, about Chuck Norris's age here. You know, is that God? Is that the vision Ezekiel will see? Chuck Norris is not God, okay? I think he knows that. Or would you expect to see this vision, maybe of a grandfather? He even has a halo to show how perfect he is. This is a tender God who's watching over us. What do you expect after Ezekiel 1-1 when he sees, he sees a vision of God? Here's what he sees. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness round about, and a fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming bronze. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the form of men, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, the soles where the feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, whatever that is, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. They went everyone straight forward without turning as they went. What do you learn about God in that vision? Wind, cloud, fire, gleaming bronze, these four living creatures that are weird. Is that what God, what's God look like? There is no description of God. There's a description of these four creatures. The whole chapter, this whole vision is like this. Down in verse 25, I'm skipping a lot, but in verse 25, there came a voice from the firmament above their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the firmament over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. Notice likeness in appearance, how much that appears. Seated above the likeness of a throne and was the likeness, as it were, of human form. And upward from that had the appearance of his loins. I, I saw, as it were, gleaming bronze, like the appearance of fire enclosed round about. And downward from what had the appearance of his loins, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness round about him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. Was, so as the appearance of the brightness round about. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Now do you understand God? Does that help? The whole chapter is just this bizarre imagery. And what Ezekiel is doing is describing what cannot be described. And, and what he was seeing was wholly different from anything he'd ever known before. Nothing on earth to compare God to. Here's just one artist's rendition of this vision of Ezekiel 1. Maybe that helps. But he uses words like likeness and appearance and as it were and it looked like. See, in the Bible, whenever anyone gets anywhere near the presence of God, the language becomes more vague and mysterious. The closer we get to God, the images get weirder, more obscure, and fuzzier because we cannot understand. It's like an ant trying to understand Einstein. And we're the ant. Ezekiel's reaction falls down. The first step in knowing God is knowing we cannot know Him. 
and we cannot control him. We cannot fully understand him. We cannot even approach him except only by the grace through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came, so we could know the unknowable. But here's a caveat. God is not able to be fully known, but he is able to be sufficiently known. Our knowledge of God would be a thimble of water compared to the ocean. But that thimble of water is enough. What we can know about him is sufficient for our salvation and for direction for our lives. I believe eternity will likely be enjoying an ever-increasing understanding and revelation of these things we do not yet know about God. Because He is infinite in being, it'd be infinite in our knowledge and learning of Him. And I think all of eternity will just be learning more and more and more about this God. And the more we know, the greater our joy. All eternity is going to be exploring the depths and the heights of this being. Psalm 73 expresses what our reaction to this God should be. You're all I want in heaven. You're all I want on earth. When my skin sags and my bones get brittle, God is rock firm and faithful. Look, those who left you are falling apart. Deserters, they'll never be heard from again, but I'm in the very presence of God. Oh, how refreshing it is. I've made Lord God my home. God, I'm telling the world what you do. You're all I want. You're all I need in heaven and on earth. I've made Lord God my home. Is that your prayer? Would you stand right now in the presence of this God? And would you raise your hands to praise of this God? And would you say these words with me from Psalm 145? Say this with me. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Now, I want you to say it again. Say it like you mean it. Let's do it. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. No one can fathom. There is none like him. Let's pray. God, may we never, ever, ever think that we know you or can control you or that you will submit to our ways. May you be our God May you smash the images that we have made of you. And may our understanding of you be expanded in ways that have never been expanded before. As Ezekiel fell on his face, may we fall down before you in submission and worship and awe. Amen.